Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Today's Leading Voices interview is with Toby Bizzuto, the CEO of Bizzuto, a company that Toby's father, Tom Bizzuto, founded in 1988 and he took over as CEO in 2015. Based in the Washington, D.C. area, Bizzuto is one of the leading firms in the apartment industry, both on the development and property management side of the business. If you mention Toby's dad's name in the industry, you immediately get a warm smile and recognition of Tom's integrity. Indeed, the company's tagline is built on values, built on integrity. In the podcast, we talk about Toby's coming into the family business and how he has navigated the potential pitfalls of being the son of the founder. We also struck themes that have long interested me. What's the meaning of integrity and values in the business world? Doesn't it all really boil down to making money? Is it authentic or is it platitude to talk about values and integrity as the core drivers of a business? To me, it could be either, but the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the behavior, reputation, and walking the walk in the industry. You'll get to hear from a second-generation leader talking about these topics. Enjoy the conversation, and we welcome your comments and feedback on this interview in the Leading Voices series on ULI.org. Toby, thanks for doing this. I'm so happy to be having the interview today. This is a very different conversation than the others we've had in the series because it's really a conversation about generations and change and corporate change and about you as well and being in the middle of that. So I look forward to diving into that conversation. Thank you very much. And I have to admit that I've known your dad starting on talking about someone else for years back when he was the regional partner at Oxford. And then when he left to form Bazudo, and I've Wonderful. watched the company, it's, well, that is the case. And I've watched your company grow and the headlines from the beginning for me somehow, I don't know, it's baked into your DNA maybe, but it's both about your dad and the company. It's that your dad's been an honorable and a good guy, which is not always the case in our industry. And that the company's always reflected those values. And I think that's the headline. And and maybe I'm I'm wrong, and maybe you'll be blushing that I'm talking about deep values in a real estate company, but maybe start there and tell me a couple things about that. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for including me and for including our company in, the, in this podcast. You know, our company, we like to say, is built on integrity and founded on values. And it's more than just a catchy phrase. To your point, my father has instilled a very uh, value-driven ethos in this company, and it's been, in my opinion, what has allowed us to grow to to where we are today. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I'm surprised more companies don't do this, but we focus on uh, being nice people and good people. And uh-huh. by doing the right thing, and and by doing it the right thing all the time. Um, it, it it has allowed us to not only be successful in our business, but to earn a really good reputation 
which from a business person's perspective is, you know, that just begets more business as well. So it's got a, there's a wonderful duality to, to doing it. Absolutely. And and it's so easy for a discussion on that subject to be pablum. It, it, it just sounds like a bunch of niceties, but I know it's true. And you also know it's true in contrast to others who, you know, behave differently. It seems that we have run into some people, as we all have in the business world, that um, regrettably can do well and make money um, not doing the right thing. And that's not how we choose to be. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways to make money, um, but that is not our prime motivator. Our, our prime motivator is to create what we call sanctuary for our residents and to treat them well and to leave a legacy. And that appears to be a very long game versus a short one. And if it was only a short game, I suppose people could cut corners, but we we don't uh, allow ourselves that uh, luxury, nor do we want it. Yeah. So, and I'm curious about the word sanctuary. I was at breakfast with a West Coast competitor here this morning, and he says hello, but we don't need to get into names on this. But he um, talked about connecting with residents from an emotive standpoint versus a demographic standpoint, maybe, or not just the numbers, but sure. the word sanctuary gets down deep in, and there's an emotion about what it feels like. So talk, just unpack that one a little bit for us. Well, you may, you may have a nice, you know, not to overly generalize, but being on the West Coast might appreciate it more than some people on the East Coast. Uh, but we think we've really tapped a vein of authenticity by developing projects and or treating people in our management business, our customers, in in a deeper way, meaning trying to connect with them emotionally. And it is my belief that any consumer, um, you know, just think of yourself and what it is that you enjoy and what products and companies you like interacting with. And if I had to bet, the ones you have the most loyalty to or feel the most deeply about are those that have created some deeper, using your word, emotional um, connection with you. So it's one thing to buy a commodity product. It's another to have a connection to it uh, intellectually or, or, you know, via your heart. And it seems like a funny thing to mention heart and business, but we, we don't think it's very funny. It's not. And we've been able to at least enjoy what we do and hopefully become very successful by doing so. Uh-huh. And, and we're talking about apartments here. So I, I feel sometimes in hotels, I, I live in a condo, so that doesn't count. And and I know in some hotels you walk in and you feel that thing. I'm curious, how do how do your residents connect to that? And how do you attempt to connect to your residents? I'm, I'm curious. Well, it comes back to that word sanctuary and that we want everyone that either lives in one of the projects we've, we've developed or built or lives in a community that we manage, regardless of whether we built it or not, uh, manage on behalf of our clients. We want them to feel like they've come home at night. And home transcends just the physical place. I mean, I would posit it doesn't even need to be your apartment unit. But instead, you know, the way you're treated when you walk in the front door, or if our staff remembers the name of your pet, or little teeny things, that connect with people on a on a real level and not an artificial one, because then again you have a, a a deeper connection. You could live in a any apartment anywhere, and the difference is how how do you or do you not connect with it? 
Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is people are willing to pay more for that type of experience, much like perhaps you would if you went out to a nice dinner where where the perception is that you're getting a value and value doesn't mean it's cheap. It just means it could be outstanding or a good uh, commensurate with what you paid for it. So the, those people tend to not only pay more to live in our apartments, but they end up staying longer, meaning renewing their leases. Staying longer and in this business is huge with a turnover rate. It's huge. It's a big deal. Huge. It is. First, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with Bazudo, this isn't the, the you part, sure. but give an overview of your company, your footprint, and the business uh, so we have a sense of who and, who and where you are, what you do. Yeah, candidly, I'm more interested in <laughs> always in talking about our company than myself. And it, sometimes I do find it's hard to separate the two because it's become such a big part of my life and my father's life. Yep. Uh, and we feel like the company is a family. Um, the Bizzuto Group is a company headquartered right outside of D.C. And we have a little over 2,000 employees now, which is amazing. Um, we have four distinct businesses, but they all roll up underneath the Bizzuto Group. And one is a construction company. We do uh, about $400 million a year in residential construction for the most part. Uh-huh. Uh, we manage about 60,000 apartment units in our management company in eight cities. So going as far south as Florida and as north as Boston and Manhattan and as west as Chicago. And um, lastly, we have a development company that develops somewhere between four and call it four and five apartment projects a year from Virginia to Boston. And lastly, a, a small, relatively small home building company that builds about 200 homes a year. So the totality of that is a full service, fully integrated real estate company. Uh Uh-huh. And your dad formed the company in 1988 with partners, and then- He sure did. And that was coming out of the Tax Act of 86, a couple years later when maybe Oxford blew up, and then right before the SNL recession. and then you Correct. came into the business and what year and when you grew up, did you want to go in the business? Um, I joined the, I, when I grew up, I did not necessarily imagine going into the business at all. And I credit my father with not really bringing it up and people find that funny or strange, but I think it was his way of just letting me do whatever it is that I wanted to do and encourage me to do so. Um, I came to him when I was about 23 or four and asked him about joining the company. And he looked shocked to tell you the truth. And he had me talk to one of his founding partners, John Slidell, who's very active in ULI. And um, John gave me the advice, as did my father, that I should not come to the company until I, A, worked for someone else for a number of years, and then B, went to graduate school. To, to obtain a master's in real estate, and then they would consider it. So I did all of those things. And when I was about 28, I believe it was, I joined the company. And it's been uh-huh. about 15 years since. Okay. And let's go back a minute. So growing up, you didn't expect to go into the business or weren't pressured to do so. And I think that's Correct. natural in, in most worlds. But what did you want to do? What were your, what were your goals? And maybe you went into the mu- music business? 
Yeah, interestingly, my mother has always been a very talented musician. She's a pianist and was a singer, um, among other things. She was a successful businesswoman as well. So I always enjoyed business and I enjoyed music. Um, in college and in high school, I was, uh, you know, did the band thing. I was the singer of a band in both high school and college and combined it with business. We sold CDs and rented out places and played and did pretty well, actually, which was fun. Uh-huh. Um, but I interned during the, the summers every year during college at Sony Records. And my thinking was I'd want to get into the music industry. And they ended up hiring me my senior year. I actually worked out of my dorm room in the afternoons. I was an employee of Sony Records when I was a senior uh-huh. oh my in God. college, which was fun. I worked yeah. for Electra Records when I graduated for a year or two. And regrettably, when you see how the sausage is made, it's not as appealing as eating the sausage. And yep. uh, I, 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 whereas I enjoyed some aspects of the music business, I didn't think it was for me long term. It, it, but I did enjoy you, it. Yeah, and I, it's funny. I interviewed someone the other day who had exactly the same start. He did it for you know, during college, and then he got close to it and said, ooh. There was an ooh factor to it, yeah. but is there was there a turning point that you just said no, not for me? I'm not really sure what what exactly it was. I just didn't see myself, you know, 20 years out from uh-huh. however young I was at that point, 22 years old, 23, thinking, and it just didn't look like a career that I wanted to be in. There was. A lot of late night hours and some rather unsavory characters. Not to say that the music industry is entirely uh, that way. Uh, But I grew up with watching my father and his company and his discipline and his values. And it just seemed a little looser in that industry. Um, Not not at Electra Records per se, but just as as a whole. And I think I wanted, I knew enough then just enough perhaps to know that it, it made it was time to go home for lack of a better word sanctuary yeah. or something like that right yeah right all right there you go where did you start what role did you start in the company and how did you grow in the company and maybe it doesn't matter that your name's Bazuto, but maybe it does so i think it probably does or it most definitely does i mean there's no way to to avoid it but it depends how you handle these things. Um, uh-huh. And I tried to handle it, and hopefully I, I, my perception of how I handled it was the reality of how I handled it um, or continue to handle it, which is with humility and, if anything, trying to work harder than anyone else, it, it, um, n- knowing that there's always going to be a nagging, is he here just because he's the son of the boss? So I started off at the bottom of um, the particular field I was interested in, which was development, and we call it a development associate, which is like an analyst. And I worked for many, many years supporting people who taught me a tremendous amount and then ultimately ran the development company. And one of those things where timing is very helpful, I um, was able to run the development company from 09 or 08, really to call it 15, and that was the time of, other than the 08 blip, a very, it was very prolific for our company. We put together a fund uh, and 
early 2010 that allowed us to build a lot of new projects. We built something like 11 or 12 new projects in that couple-year period after 08, and mm -hmm. that really got us out ahead of some of our competitors, or at least earlier than some of our competitors. Right. And 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 then when did you become the CEO of the company? So what what yeah, talk about transition from development and running development to CEO. So when you run, or at least in the case of our company, when you run one division, you have the propensity perhaps to know more about that than the other parts of the company. So my dad had created a president role, which had not existed before, or, or or at least it had not been bifurcated from his role. He was the CEO and president, but we created a president role that allowed me to work under him for a year or two. And we had not done that in the, you know, up to then 13 year history of me working at Bizzuto, our thinking being it would be better if I reported to different people. So that was really great because I got some guidance, a tremendous amount of guidance from my father. And last September was when I became, so maybe a year and a couple months ago is when I mm -hmm. became the CEO and my father uh, stepped to chairman, to, to just the chairman role versus uh, chairman and CEO. Right. And, and isn't he also chief cultural officer? That's his, yeah, we, his we other call title? him that unoffic unofficially, that's his title. He spends a tremendous amount of his time now that he's freed up from the day-to-day -day operating of the business. Uh -huh. He spends a tremendous amount of his time doing something he's always done, but now he does it more, which is he gets in a car and he goes and visits our projects that we own or manage. And he checks in with people, uh, gets a temperature of our culture, makes sure our quality and our standards are being kept, and really just gets to talk to people. And then he helps feed me information and ideas from the front lines as to what we might be doing better. Um, as a company, and many of the things he's taught me or, or learned from that reconnaissance has helped us become, uh, you know, one of the best places to work by the Washington Post last year, and something like six or seven years before that from the Washington Business Journal. So, uh -huh. it, it, but it's an organic, and always you always have to meddle with it, and it's not a stagnant thing. A business is not a stagnant thing, as you know. No, especially. And if you want to be remain a best place to work, it, that is a goal. It gets back to the, the cultural issues we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation, but it's continuous improvement. You never get there. Absolutely right. I, I could wake up at any given day, any time, and always do something better for mm -hmm. my employees, for the company. And it's that quest, that ongoing quest that I think will keep me interested for the rest of my life. It's how to A, improve the culture for our employees and the way that they're treated and be our product and whatever it is that we're attempting to leave behind. Uh -huh. That's wonderful. So let's go back for a second. So when you, when you are in a room, I always wonder, and everyone has a different uh, approach to this. What's your, what, what do you call your dad? Dad. Interesting. Dad. In, in and, business, uh, he's dad. Yeah, sure. Why the hell not? Because, you know, there's only one of them in my world. 
and it's him. So it's good. I don't want to create an alternate name. I've got a buddy who works for another company, and he calls his dad by his first name. And every time he says it, it makes me think it's weird or strange. And and I'm sure it's not strange for them. And I don't mean to judge, but it always causes me to pause. And you know, I, I've called him dad my whole life, and I'm in my 40s now. It's sort of I, I wouldn't know how to even begin calling him Tom. I would, in fact, it, it's just strange to me. It feels um, bizarre, right? I, every time yeah. I hear that from the son of someone in the business or daughter of someone in the business, I, I kind of, I jolt. It doesn't feel right to me either. Right. Whereas I think if I refer to him as dad, since he is my dad, <laughs> uh, you know, worst case, someone may think, wow, that's very familiar. Great. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, if that's, if that's the worst thing you can accuse me of if, is that we have a close relationship, then, hey, that's awesome. Uh, uh, so that's what we've chosen to do. I, I think he would find it really strange also. Uh-huh. So other questions. So you, you learned the business through the development side. What we most of us know about real estate is that development or investments are the sexy side. They drive the business. They're the headlines of the business. Um, we know for years that property management's the opposite of the headlines of the business, but also in many ways, maybe where the culture comes from and the base upon which you're able to do these more fun things. Um, how, when you come into the president role to broaden your perspective, how do you know to give equal attention or over attention to those areas? Uh, I don't know if I'm putting the question right, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I understand your question. You know, shifting from running one division to understanding the totality of the organization took some getting used to, and I'm sure I'm still getting used to it. But what I learned is that each each business line, whether it's our management company or our development or home building construction, they're all unique and they're populated by extremely interesting people that have the same cultural ideals of our company. Mm-hmm. and the the more I dig, the more I love it. The the more I learn, but about each group. But what I've learned, the unifying theme is a simple one, which is doing the right thing and treating our customers well. And that flows through all of our business lines. We've been saying internally. I tell everyone, and it's a phrase that it's echoed amongst all of us here, is that we are in the business of creating extraordinary experiences. And if you think about that, you can do that through the way you interact with people, the product you build, whether it's design aesthetic, et cetera. And it helps all of us share a unified why, for lack of a better word. Why Mm -hmm. are we doing what we're doing? Not what, but why. It's interesting. in our company, we're, we're recruiters. We place people, and what the business seems to be about is putting a butt in the chair. But the business is really about all the things you've said in many respects. It's about how you treat people, about creating long-term relationships. It's about long-term values. It's about adding value. So for me, it, it's so much. It's so often not about the obvious game, but it's about that bigger picture where you're coming from. I think so. And I think if if you and I were to contemplate, again, the brands that meant a lot to us, maybe you really like the Apple iPhone in your pocket and you like everything Apple puts out. I would say to you, if Apple put out a car tomorrow, would you be interested in buying it? I'm guessing the answer, if you like Apple, would be 
yeah, I would love to see it. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of, in their case, it's convenience and coolness or whatever it is that they're pushing. But we've all bought in. And there are many brands that do that. And there are many brands that don't. And we would, I would rather have a brand as it were, and that, that's exactly what we're trying to create, by the way, is a brand. And right. if our brand can represent all these things with that, that are good things, well, what, what a great way to run a business. And hey, you can make money doing it as well. I mean, don't tell anyone, but that's just, you know, cherry on the Sunday. It's not yep. the prime motivator. I, it, it's interesting. I, I fully agree with the perspective, and I agree that money becomes a wonderful byproduct. Um, we don't experience that in the world of business. The headlines in the world of business are the money. The headlines in a real estate company are the assets, not the people in the DNA. And you're expressing the opposite. Um, the money, of course, follows. So the cynical have trouble believing that. I do believe it because I study companies for a living. The cynical do do have a problem believing it until they don't. I mean, no one's laughing at Richard Branson for Virgin, right. uh, Air, you know, from Virgin as a brand. He seems to be having a good time, and we all are a little bit jealous. But he's also making a lot of money. Um, yeah. There are other brands. I get the, the the sense that Elon Musk is not doing this all for money. Uh, there, he had enough money already. Right before he started Tesla, so there there are ways there are very successful businesses, and when we read about them or hear about them, it all makes sense. But you're right; so often that's not rewarded, uh, at least perceptively by Wall Street, for for lack of a better word. But when it is awarded, is when these companies make money, and you and I are arguing that you can do both. Absolutely true. I think you do better at the money if you do better at the first one, but it's a good, big question. So let, let's change topics again. I'm, and I'm curious about, again, uh, we've talked about your rise through the company and to maybe a place that you knew you know, was, was attainable and would happen. I was talking to someone from another family real estate company recently, and I asked my friend the question, my friend's not the CEO. I said, how does this guy avoid having to be the smartest guy in the room all the time syndrome. And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but it, you know, if, if you're young and you have something to prove, maybe you always have to know more than everybody else in the room on any subject so you can show that you really belong there. I don't think you have that syndrome, but talk about that a little bit. Yeah. It's not something that drives me per se to always want to outsmart those around me. Rather, I've recognize that there's some incredibly smart or smarter people around me that I can rise with. Um, you know, do I feel personally driven? Yes. Do I keep that very private? Yes. So I do what I need to do. But at the end of the day, this company is about our 2000 employees um, and what they are contributing to our company. And I don't have any need or desire to prove that I'm better or worse than any of them. And I think that um, that sort of level playing field is what makes us an enjoyable place to work. And if we're successful, if the company's successful, 
that I will feel personally successful, but I would ne conversely, I would never want my success to come over that of anyone else's here. So we've talked about values. Let's look at values from a different perspective and look at values from the perspective of how real estate can be a force of good in the world, not just at the granular level of someone loves their sanctuary, but at the neighborhood level, community level, changing cities, urbanization. And I believe personally that real estate's been part of the problem in creating sprawl in the past, but now we're a big part of the solution in making our cities great, wonderful places to live. Um, talk a little bit about those questions when it comes to your developments, your management, and your company. Well, at the end of the day, we want to be involved. Again, you'll, you'll find this very similar to everything else I've been saying. We want to be involved with things that are net positive. So, again, this creation of extraordinary experiences, you could say dot, dot, dot for our customers, but you could also say or for the community that we live in. So when we build a project, we don't think of it as existing in isolation um, on a block. We think of it more as additive, hopefully, uh, and positive, hopefully, to the community. And we always say that we feel like we're guests when we come into a community, and we don't try to take it over. So we're not building monolithic buildings that dwarf everything else rather. We're trying to integrate our, our projects into the community or in some cases help create new communities. And that's that's been extremely rewarding and almost mind-blowing that we've been able to be parts of creating some neighborhoods, as it were. Um, Tell me a mind-blowing story. Use an example of that. Sure. There's two I can think of off the top of my head. Or actually, there's probably many, but um, one that comes immediately to mind is Catholic University in Washington, D.C. is a beautiful, beautiful campus. And at the foot of the campus were some 1950s brutalist dorms. And uh, we, uh, along with our partner, uh, the Pritzker Company and a, a local developer in D.C., Abd Jim Abdo, over time were able to turn it into a quarter of a billion dollar project with that was anchored by artist studios on the ground floor um, uh -huh. creating what we called an arts walk and it, it was just a, a, the amount of retail residential and uh, artist space that we created over something like five city blocks allowed us to ch completely change an environment which had been a bunch of these dorms into a, a real neighborhood now it was additive it a, a very lovely neighborhood that existed already, but this portion of the neighborhood was all but dead. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we were we were really appreciative of of that opportunity, and that's and it's on a metro stop as well. So it's sort of all the development fantasies came together on that one. We were part of a project in Baltimore City. There was an area of land called Harbor East, which was. Uh, east, as it were, of the CBD and had been fouled. When I grew up it, in Baltimore, it was an old parking lot and a railroad turnaround station. I mean, it was a disaster forever. Uh -huh. And we, along with some local partners called H&S that were actually bakery owners that bought the land, developed, they developed a lot of it and we developed some of it. And it, it has now become this amazing 
place in Baltimore in the new center of gravity. And we just started uh, construction on a second building there, which is going to be a 20-some-odd story tower with a 55,000-foot Whole Foods on the ground floor, which would have been unimaginable, uh, you know, 10 years ago in right. that location. So it's really fun to live in a city and to be able to go out at night with your wife and visit the very places that you were fortunate enough to have been a part of developing. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I stayed there, actually, or I stayed around the corner from there a couple of months ago at a conference, and uh, I hadn't been there since all that development had occurred. It was gorgeous. Thank you so much. But talk about, I think of Baltimore, I think of that area, and then I go like a couple dozen blocks away from there, and I think of the wire and uh, the challenges of Baltimore. So how do they coexist together? And do you play in that space to help transition those and build those neighborhoods? So, you know, if you had been in DC, as you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it it felt in many ways the same way where there was tremendous amount of concentrated poverty and um, just some, you know, some nodes of wealth and it is sad to see that, and it is not entirely fixed. And in Baltimore, there are most certainly areas that are extremely poor. And I don't profess to have the solutions because they, they seem to have deep social and, uh, in, in many cases, addictive issues. Um, and I, I think at the end of the day, what my company is trying to do is to the degree we have an opportunity to be involved in any project, we're trying to do the best we can and to elevate whatever part of the world we're working on. So if I only watched The Wire, <laughs> I may think I should never be in Baltimore. But I, we've built almost half a billion dollars worth of real estate in Baltimore in the past six years while The Wire is you know, proudly showing reruns on HBO. And we have helped create jobs and opportunity and people spend their real money and they don't flee from the city at night to the suburbs, but that rather they stay. So in our small way, perhaps insignificant, but we do our best. We also build affordable housing. We try to do one or two projects a year that um, are tax credit deals. So, and we do it more for the ethical reasons and that we think we should. And the beauty there is that we try to build as beautiful of a project as we can, at regardless of price point. Again, this concept of creating an extraordinary experience does not have to be in, um, just for rich people. Absolutely. And have any of those projects been in Baltimore? Um, yes, we're building a for sale community, meaning townhomes, in an area of Baltimore, and it's called Uplands. And we've sold over a hundred homes in at Uplands, mainly to first-time home buyers with credit counseling, et cetera, that have really good jobs and are really hardworking, good people. And it's in a neighborhood that um, admittedly has not been the safest neighborhood in the world. And these people are making real commitments to their community and living there and are changing the community. And it's one of the best-selling uh, for-sale projects in Baltimore City, regardless of price point. If That's you, great. If, you did, if volume and pace is an indicator. Uh-huh. 
change of subject. You've been outspoken in wanting to bring more women into senior leadership roles in the real estate business. I know Julie Smith and Jamie Gorlick and others, you have, you have a great team actually of women, but talk about why that's important and then what you guys have done and how that fits in with your leadership style. I, um, it's hugely important to me. I have uh, a mother who has always been uh, an extraordinary businesswoman and most recently was the chair and interim CEO of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. I have two daughters and I have a wonderful wife and sister who are also businesswomen. And I have always viewed women as not only equal, but really wonderful partners in business and in life. You're and wise men. Yes, at a minimum, I'm thinking. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I'm very fortuitous in that I have Julie Smith as my right-hand person here. She's my chief administrative officer. I, I elevated her to that position after she had run and built our management company for 20-some-odd years. Jamie Gorski is the head of our, our chief marketing officer. And a woman named Stephanie Williams is an African-American woman, runs our management company, and she is a superstar, a complete superstar. So I, and she's a partner, in, as, is, as is Julie, in my company with me. Uh, these are not token gestures. These are not done for any other reason than it was the, it's the right thing to do from a business standpoint. Uh, they're the best at their jobs, these particular women that I'm describing. I know that's true. So they're excellent. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, they're awesome. So it's important to me and it's important that we have a culture where when someone says we have X amount of women working at our company and then you really dig deep and you find out what roles they're in, what we want to say is that um, this is a balanced company and the leadership is balanced as well as the gender. And and does that uh, roll over to the investment and the development side as well? Yes. Interestingly, and our construction side, which perhaps even more important, women yeah, in hard hats. Uh, yep. Yeah, we something like thirty percent of our construction company uh, that work for Bazuda are women. Our development company is something like fifty percent women. And uh, you know, not to overly generalize, but I think that's probably high, relatively speaking, compared to some other companies. But again, be. these are the best people for the roles. And they bring a perspective and a, dy a d dynamic to the team um, that is hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. And, of course, like most things in life, once you get going with an idea, people are attracted to it that the idea resonates with. So we are getting incredible women that are interested in working at our company because they see that the women in leadership are are the people in leadership are, are women to some degree. And um, it's a very, very good culture here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that gets us the best and the brightest. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Oh, it, it, and I get, I get to get interviewed on a podcast, but it's really about them. <laughs> no. Well, it's, you know, it's again, it's been the culture of your company since uh, for many years, not just in the last couple of years. So that matters a huge amount. And and it does, cultures become self-perpetuating. It gets into the DNA of the business. So we're back into thinking about generations. 
you're still a fairly young person among the CEOs in the real estate business. What perspective as someone who's earlier than a baby boomer, what perspective do you bring to the business? What what do you see that us baby boomers might not see? We've talked about a couple of those things, but how might that affect how you run your business, how you deal with your customers, different things you see, out-of-the-box things us baby boomers don't catch? Yeah, I'm in an interesting spot in my early 40s. I'm 42. And I'm neither a baby boomer nor a millennial. I'm Gen X, which seemingly not a very interesting demographic group that I'm in, <laughs> where no one writes much about us and we're just caught in the middle. But one of the perspectives of being in the middle is that I'm old enough that I'm smart enough to perceive that the baby boomers have a ton to teach me in terms of how to run my company and uh, but also as customers, but that I can also be young enough that I can learn um, sort of great ideas are bubbling up from the millennials that work in our company, um, as well as Gen Y members um, and our customers. So I think I'm closer to the age of our renter than per a baby boomer would be. Interestingly, right. though, baby boomers are becoming some of our renters as well. So it's it's not that's why being in the middle is this really sort of wonderfully unique position, and it's one I've also um, learned that there it would, for whatever reason at the time when I was interested in real estate was the time when investment banking was really big uh -huh. career wise. So there are not a lot of people my in my age bracket that are in the industry. And there were ultimately more later when, there, of course, when the real estate boom happened in the mid-2000s, although the crash may have cleared some of them out. So I, I, yeah. my age is a, a unique uh, thing that I consider an attribute in our business on a relative basis. It's true. It's interesting uh, from a recruiting standpoint. We, we, we all want to find those great future leaders in your age bracket, and it's a rare commodity. That's fascinating. Yeah, you, you would you would probably know better than anyone. And, and my armchair guess is that when I was in college, going into investment banking was seen as extremely seductive or technology right after that. Right. Both yep. are, are, were very alluring, especially there on the West Coast where you are. Uh, real estate was sort of way further down the continuum. Um, that being said, the 30 early 30 year olds and 20 year somethings. We have an amazing group of people, both in this company and that of my competitors. Seems to be a very um, good field. And we've seen the proliferation of uh, the uh, master's programs devoted to real estate since. Absolutely. Actually, one of the themes and purposes from my standpoint of the podcast series is to help young people looking into the business to find different pathways, different inspirations to and and uh, to see this as a business where they can really make a difference and make a good living. And th there's so many pathways, you know, wh whichever sector of the business, whatever geography, whatever functional area. Maybe a last question, because um, I think we have a few more minutes. What else do you do in your life? How do you maintain some, some balance outside of the business? You, know, you have your wife and two daughters, but... Uh, and a son, well, too, yeah. And a son, good. So, but what do you do to keep perspective on this? And how do you have fun? I'm interested in a million different things, reading and 
music probably being the, the highest on my on my list. I'll, I'll start by saying though that my family is the most important thing I have, and that that's sort of my greatest piece is with my family. I you know I enjoy activities like playing music. I play piano almost every day. I collect rare books by interesting people that have made a difference in the world. That's a very expensive hobby that I somehow got myself into and can't get myself out of. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but again, mostly um, spending time with my family is my my greatest joy. I also have a very strange schedule. I get up at 4.30 every day and I work out in the morning and it's the only time I can really clear my head and yeah. then kind of launch into the day. So I enjoy getting the most out of every day. Sounds wonderful. The last question. So what what's the one of the most memorable rare books by someone who's made a difference that you bought? So I just bought and again, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I just told my wife about it and I'm only now getting out of trouble, but I just okay, bought good. A, Yeah, I only <laughs> I just bought a book by Houdini. Sign uh, I buy signed books. I should clarify that. I have this fantasy that all these interesting people that have contributed to the world sort of cohabitate in a motley crew on my shelf. And I kind of wonder what the world would be like without them. And whereas Houdini wasn't a religious figure or a politician or anything like that, I greatly admired his uniqueness. And, you know, what he, in his particular field, how he changed everything. And I, and I tend to People that have done that, those types of things really resonate with me the most. So that's my most recently overly decadent purchase. <laughs> but I guess there are worse things. No, there's worse things. He lives with you. You can touch something he touched. I, I he find some the, meaning in that. Yeah, and he shares the um, shelf with a book signed by Amelia Earhart. So they probably have never been in the same place. <laughs> until my home office but now they are and you know they both made an impact in their own way we hope you enjoyed this installment of the leading voices with uli podcast hosted by the urban land institute to learn more about uli's leadership network or to join uli as a member please visit uli.org